0: Greetings, friends, and welcome back, or welcome to The High Flyers Podcast, the community for the curious ones, where we share diverse experiences in life, not just work. Tune in and learn to fly high in your own way, from value creators and problem solvers in all aspects of society. Learn about their sunrise, magic moments, hustle, and so much more to help us all be 1% better every day together. And I'm your host, Virid Agarwal.
1: And it really ignited this passion as well for the, for the natural world. I think it's the most beautiful place I've ever been. Um, and that really transformed me to, to really wanting to kind of get into a field and, and, and use my, my knowledge and expertise and design to work towards, you know, a, a world where we can do that everywhere.
2: So I stopped and turned, like, at the wall. I started walking working next to the wall. And at that point, all these Chinese police, like, surrounded me, started yelling in Chinese, asking what I was doing. And uh, so I put the camera away. Um, tried to, you know, play the dumb tourist and explain that I was, I was trying to get back to my accommodation, that I was lost. Luckily, that it ended there, I think.
0: Episode 40. Wow. To think that the journey of this show was born out of adversity and now hitting 40 episodes. How do you celebrate? I thought I'd ask two of my good friends to join me for a chat. And this really was a special chat with Flo, based in Melbourne, Australia, and Ed, based in California in the US. Growing up in the Netherlands and moving to Australia six years ago to be with his girlfriend, Flo talks about the influence of his tight-knit family being raised away from the big city A trip to Norway and how that ignited a deep passion for the community, the environment and sustainable practices in design. With similar family values, Ed, who grew up on the other side of the world, in Geelong in Australia, shares his forming experiences, including moving to Melbourne for university that allowed him to reset and start to really understand more. We talk about a marathon running experience. What we learned from that one-year journey, our shared love for travel and culture, the meaning of success in life and work, intrinsic versus extrinsic motivators, both Ed and Flo share insights into their field of work in industrial design and circular economy, flow, and open-source mapping, startups, and global adventures. For Ed. Now this is a really cool episode. I've got a f- the first of many. It's the 40th episode. It's the first episode with two guests. I haven't had two guests in the past and it's the first with two of my best mates. So I've got Florian, Flo and Eduardo, Ed on the episode. Welcome, gents.
2: Thanks, Vidit. Good to be here.
1: Thanks, Vidit. Good to see you.
0: Yeah, it's great to have both of you. This this is a special episode and I've said from the start of the podcast that I want to celebrate the milestones with people that are close to me. So really excited to have both of you on for episode 40. Listeners always like understanding their guests, so maybe we can start off with you, Ed. How would you describe yourself and, and where you own life today?
2: Sure. So I think one of the things that defines me recently is I moved to the United States in January, but I was born and raised in Australia. Uh, so I'm working here um, in, I guess, the mapping space. I guess we'll talk about that a bit more later. Uh, I am married to my uh, lovely wife, Suji. We got married last year, so that's another significant part of my life. Um, I like climbing, uh, which is something that I try to do regularly. I was doing that earlier today. And so I think most of my, my hours are either spent uh, working it, which is a, something I'm really passionate about or traveling, which I try to do as much as possible. We've been exploring the United States a lot recently, which has been fun. Places like Hawaii and uh, California and Nevada. And and climbing uh, and running, of course, which is where I met you two boys. Um, well, no, met you, Vidit, a bit earlier than that. But obviously, we've been doing a lot of running over the years, which is another great passion of mine. So those are, th- I think, the things that would probably define me more than anything else.
0: Yeah, I love it. And what about you, Flo?
2: Yeah,
1: thanks, Vidit. Um, I guess the thing that defines me most is that I'm not from Australia, from the Netherlands. Moved over to Australia in 2017, so it's, it's a little while ago. Born and raised in the Netherlands, studied um, industrial design engineering at the TU Delft. Um, moved uh, to Australia to be with my partner after after graduating, and now working as a designer in Melbourne. Um, yeah, of course, met you boys doing running, which is which is great. Still love doing it. Um, I think some of the defining stuff for me personally is is just my broad interest in, in design but also in, in staying active and, and running and I've climbed with you guys a couple of times before but I think I'm going to stick to running for now.
0: <laughs> it's That's worth giving me. the listeners some perspective that Ed and Flo are very fast runners and they're very good runners. <laughs> I think I'm definitely one of the stragglers who's trying to fit in and, and just catch up so.
2: <laughs> I think if you check my Strava you'll find differently in fact I almost like Yesterday was the closest I've come to a heart attack. It's 33 degrees here in California. I'm running up a hill, getting to the top of it, and I almost passed out. So that's kind of where my running's at now.
0: That's also Ed being humble. So <laughs> thanks, Ed.
1: <laughs> Good memories with us training for our marathon. I remember that on the hot days. Yeah, exactly.
0: yeah. Let's let's maybe let's talk about that. I think that's that's probably an equal part of kind of the influences in our lives. I think I look at the marathon that was back in 20. 18 for Flo and I,
2: and then Ed, I think you did yours in 2019, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah, you guilt tripped me into it. I felt <laughs> so guilty that you guys had pulled one off in 2018. I had to replicate it the year after.
0: Flo, ha- ha- how, how was that experience for you? Because I remember we used to do it. This was me living in Melbourne. I'm now in Sydney. Um, we used to catch up every week and then do the training and... And I think some of us gave it more focus than others. We can be pretty (laughs) open about that. But it was quite an experience. What what are your memories, think, looking back at at that one year?
1: I absolutely loved it. I really enjoyed it. I think for me, the main thing was just the social aspect of it. Like, obviously, we started running as a group just to to catch up as a bunch of friends and, you know, calling ourselves the run club and in true uh, run club mentality it was like if you you just have a drink the night before and then you go for a run in the morning that's all fine <laughs> you don't have to perform every single time and that was the that was the beauty of it is that we could just be ourselves don't worry about your performance just come to the run enjoy have a bit of physical activity and then yeah the plan to do the marathon kind of formed after we did our first event i think Mm. I remember that we, we started I can't even remember what year it was now, but we started in like January and then in March we decided to do the run for the kids, which was a 15k, 15K run. Yeah. Yeah. And that was that was just so much fun. And I, I remember the just the vibe of, of doing that event. And um, just as a bit bit of background, I've always done athletics when I was a kid. So it kind of reminded me of, of that kind of you know the, that kind of atmosphere, which was a lot of fun. And then maybe it was me who kind of pushed us to do more events. I think there was a few, a few other one, a few other guys also decided to do that. And then we were like, "Why not just aim for the stars and sign up for the marathon?" And everybody was like, "Oh, yeah, sure, <laughs> fine. <laughs> not sure if I really want to do that," but then we just signed up anyway. And then you have to commit because you know it's some bloody. or something like that to sign up so we did did the training and yeah I just really enjoyed that social aspect of it and then you kind of keep each other accountable for rocking up and actually doing it and then did the marathon and haven't run further than 10k since so there you go
0: (laughs) yeah I think thinking back it was probably one of my most favorite years 2018 I think just because we we got closer as a group and and ed was part of that he used to join i think training for memory and we had a few others we had taps as well who's been on the show previously um i I think that was the really cool part is we got closer as as friends i think we were all close prior to it but that brought us even closer and even now and i think back what two and a half three years on we're probably closer than ever even though we live in different cities and countries i mean ed you said you're in the us flo you're in melbourne i'm in sydney taps is in tassie and then Simon and Jordan are in Melbourne, but but with lockdowns and stuff, it's sort of been separated. But that's probably been the, the nice part about it, is that an event like that's brought us closer. And I think maybe it even showed us that we can do more than what we thought we're capable of. I think when I think back to Ed, when I met you in 2014, if someone said to me I'd run a marathon in 2018, I would have probably gone, no, you're talking a bit of rubbish there. I'm never going to be doing that. So no, good memories.
2: Yeah, it shows the power of peer pressure in a positive way. I would yeah. have been the same as you, but I didn't think I'd be able to pull it off. But it's one of those things where you slowly build up to it. And then even on the day itself, right, you, you haven't ran a marathon prior to that. Most people haven't anyway in terms of the, the training preparation. But then on the day itself, you just find a way to get over the line. And as you said, Vidit, it is uh, an analogy for other things in your life that you can push a bit harder than you generally expect.
0: Mm, I think some of us are flying higher than others during that run. So <laughs>
2: um, let, let's get into the, your
0: your sunrise, guys. Um, this is one of my favourite segments. I think we really understand us as people and and walk with those early formations. Um, and it's really fascinating because I think all three of us have had different sunrises in different cultures, in different um, upbringings. Flow, maybe we start with you. Like you, you, you touched on the Netherlands and Dutch upbringing, and I know having known you quite well, that plays a big part in the way you think and the way you go about life. But when you think back to your early days, what was the environment like? What was the influence of family?
1: Yeah, I think um, it's a very good question. Um, I would consider my my childhood and, and my early life very supportive, uh, well-supported. Um, I think I got the, the room and the... Uh, you know, just the ability from from my parents and family to to kind of just explore myself and and do whatever I wanted to do. And So I grew up in a in a small country town, reasonably small country town. Um, so in that aspect, I'd I'd say that my upbringing was relatively sheltered. I guess you know, I didn't grow up in a big city. wasn't really wasn't really uh, exposed to to some of the nasty stuff that that usually comes with large groups of people. So you know, there's not a lot of crime and, and and things like that in in my little hometown, which is good in a way. Um, and then that also, you know, created the sense within within myself that I really wanted to explore the world further. I guess that kind of there's there's two there's two sides to it, right? In that when you grow up in a small town like that, then yes, you know, it's a very safe environment and it's very sheltered in a way, allows you to to do whatever you want to do, but then also you really want to explore what else is out there. So that really, you know, led to a lot of my decisions to 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 move away. So immediately when I started high school, um, decided to go to a bigger city uh, about half an hour away from my hometown and go to high school there instead of my my local town. And then after that, moved to Delft, which is an even larger city to to study. Um, for my university and yeah i think i I just really got the sense from an early age that i wanted to explore more of the world Um, did a fair bit of traveling and um, met my lovely partner bridey of course in, in spain back in the day and after graduating decided to to make the move to australia which was the first time for me actually leaving europe which is funny um so I think that that really defined my decision making in a way that I, I wanted to see more and do more and understand how people do things in, in in other areas because I do feel that you know culture is something that's very very individual for a lot of people, um, and I would also say that from my background in the Netherlands, the Netherlands in general is quite tolerant of. You know, and quite tolerant in general of other people, other cultures, and things like that, and that really made me think that, you know, there's no one right or wrong way. But I would just love to see the rest of the world and see how other people do things and live their lives in general.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and tell us about your the influence of your parents because I've been I've been fortunate to meet your parents once, and and I know they played a big role in your. I mean, for all of us, they play a big role in your thinking and, and the way you approach life, right? So when you were maybe the age of nine, 10, and you were a young fly running around in, in, in the Netherlands. What what was the influence in terms of your behaviors and your attitude in life and and maybe even your passions growing up?
1: Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, I don't have a lot of memories from when I was that young, but I would say that my parents are both very, um, they're very focused and, and disciplined people, um, my mother is a psychologist and, and my father is a is a is a judge. And so they are both um, I, I I personally consider them very successful people and um, they're very humble about it, but they they have done very well and, and they do that because they are disciplined, they work very hard and that work ethic I think has kind of been instilled in myself as well. Um, so I think that they they very, ma- very much had that influence on me. On you know, you yes, you can be talented and yes, you can be good at certain things. But what really counts is working hard, being disciplined, and and you know being tolerant for other people and other perspectives and other opinions. But make sure that you put in the time and make sure that you commit yourself to something that you enjoy doing and work hard and i think that still to this day um i value that very much having having that instilled in me as a from a from a young age is that that discipline and that focus and that helps me a lot in 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 my current role and in my future life i'm sure
0: yeah good no good perspective and i've got a few more few more things that i think we can touch on after ed maybe touches on his sunrise um, Ed, you, you you had a different sunrise in, in a way compared to Flo. You were in Australia, you were in Geelong. Touching that, like what was that like for you? What were your memories looking back? And I know, again, you've, you've, had, you've got a big influence of family and the Italian heritage, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think in some ways I share similarities with Flo. Geelong's probably a bit bigger than where you grew up, but it's definitely in some ways sheltered from uh, other bigger cities around the world. And so for me... I can relate to living in a bit of a bubble um, as great as that was. My parents were exposing me to a lot of different things. I was able to live overseas a few times as a as a kid, which kind of exposed me to a bit of a broader world, but I think still more sheltered than perhaps some other people have had for better and for worse. Um, so for context, my mum's Italian, my dad is kind of Anglo-Saxon heritage. And again, that was a nice point of difference. I've got my mum, who's probably more as you can imagine, uh, very stereotypical, (laughs) uh, emotive, loving Italian family. Um, When we have Christmas with that side of the family, it's very loud and fun and um, great food. And then on dad's side, it's it's more calm and logical and um, they're they're more like scientifically minded uh, in, in some ways. So it was great having those two contrasting, I guess, aspects to my upbringing. Uh, And so I think I'm very lucky to have that. My mum's more sociable. My dad's more kind of quiet and reflective type. So I probably oscillate somewhere in between the two. But very privileged upbringing, um, which I'm more appreciative of now, like most people. Um, When you look back, you start to understand how much of the experiences you had in those first 18 years or so influenced you up to the present day. And so for me, I think what really started to change was probably when I moved to Melbourne for university, I was... And you were 18 finally, when you moved, right? Yeah, I was 18. Yeah, I think I was 18 when I moved, um, going on 19. So turning 19 in that year when I moved. And that was such a fantastic experience for me as someone who was probably socially well behind my peers, just not as not as adept at like understanding social cues and the ways of the world as I think maybe some other people in my high school were moving to Melbourne was like a new identity of sorts. It was almost like hitting the reset button and getting more confidence over time and uh, trying and embracing so many different new experiences. So yeah, I think I've been very lucky to have a childhood like I did and then um, live in different countries and then move to Melbourne that really probably set off a new phase in my life. And I think we'll talk about that a bit later, but moving to de- various countries has often been a catalyst for uncovering a new identity within myself, or trying new experiences, or just even, strangely enough, having it almost gives you this uh, uh, this opportunity to uh, to reinvent yourself and try new things that you might not necessarily do if you're just staying in the same city all the time. And maybe that it I don't know. Can you relate to that? Having moved to Sydney recently, did you feel like someone who'd grown up um, first in India and then Victoria, did moving to Sydney give you an opportunity to, to reinvent yourself in some ways?
0: Um, yes and no. Like, I think it was probably more evolved myself. Um, but when I think back to my childhood or my sunrise, as we call it, I think similar to you guys, i a very big influence of family. I mean, even now I'm very close with my family um, and growing up in India I mean a lot, a lot of people don't know about that but I grew up in India in, in a place called Calcutta for the first 10 years of my life um, and that was amazing I mean I even now if someone said to me at that age i would be moving out of that culture or that community I still scratch my head going how did that happen because um, mum was a housewife um, dad was a businessman and he had business kind of all over India and Asia and he was traveling but he was still around and you had influence Um, but mum was very heavily involved in me and my younger brother's life growing up I mean even now she she I think I'm heavily influenced by by her and her views Um, and no it was a great great childhood I mean we had we were able to try many things I mean I remember doing every class possible whether it was karate or chess or calligraphy or pottery or or you name it Um, I think the one thing that I look back on is is the academic side I think it's safe to say I was not the academic kid. I mean, I like trying things and I like maybe questioning the rules a bit and, <laughs> and and experimenting. I think that's probably one thing that I now look back on and go that even if even if the schooling system said to you that you're not good enough, if if the world, if your family and your friends and yourself, if you have a bit of self belief, things can turn out okay. Um, and I think that's what I talk now on the show about it and a lot of guests that have come on and had had similar experiences. But in terms of Sydney, um, that, I mean, circumstances led to it. It wasn't something that I had a had a clear plan on. And I think that's been the other thing through my life is nothing's really had a clear plan as such. I think one thing's led to another. Um, I mean, you, in the podcast, for example, it was adversity that led to the podcast because I was out of work for a while and I wasn't sure what I'll be doing. So I said, let's start something and be productive. Um, mm. so yeah, it's been, it's been interesting, but I think one thing that I'm curious to ask you guys, and we talk about it a lot, in our sort of social gatherings is, is what does success, success look like to you when you were 17, 18, not today, but when you think back to your childhood and in the influence of the environment and your family, like what to you at that age was success. Like to me, it was playing sport. I wanted to be a tennis player and that to me was success Whether it was realistic or not is a different point, but to me that was success, right? If I could become a tennis player when I was 15.
2: I was. I would, have, I would have been very happy with life. What was it for you guys? Yeah, so for me, my definition of success, probably even back then, like I've always, I think for a long time, had a fascination with business, which is, yeah, a very broad term, but I just love the idea of, of business as an, an excuse to kind of be involved in so many different fields. So I'm the kind of person that doesn't like to, Maybe it's a weakness and a strength at the same time. But I don't like to be too deep in one particular subject matter for too long. And so, business is an opportunity to expose yourself to different things. So, my definition of success back then was looking at people around me, people like a couple of my uncles who I admired a lot, who were who were businessmen themselves and themselves. And I loved the variety of their work and the fact that each day when they wake up in the morning, they can shape a lot of what their day looks like and what their what their year looks like. That was very motivating for me. And I think it probably hasn't changed too much. Obviously my definition is a lot broader now. Um, I, I think, I mean, to take the cliche, happiness is obviously most important. Um, but to me personally, it, it was very much shaped along those, those lines of business and being able to do something you love every day, being passionate. Um, one of my uncles, he was, Well, he still is actually, he's 80 something. No, he's 90 90 something. He still works um, on his business because he loves it so much. And he's been doing that for probably 60 something years now. And I just love the idea that someone finds something that they're willing to commit to for 60 plus years and, and do so voluntarily. And the other two things about these individuals that really resonated with me is that they're always incredibly calm. Nothing phases them. And I remember one of them, we were having a a dinner uh, at one point and even I don't I can't remember how the conversation came up exactly but he was telling me just not to stress about the little things and he was probably looking at me as you know this angsty teenager I was probably 17 18 just <laughs> really low on self-esteem just stressed about everything and just seeing this this person who seemed to have it all together and just doesn't get phased, even if he's got stressful things going on at work with his business and maybe financial decisions on the line or personal decisions that are going on. Just that ability to constantly zoom out and see things in perspective was something that I really admired and have kind of been trying to chart towards ever since then with various degrees of success, but that to me ultimately is probably where I am now, if you define success, just having a calmness about you and being able to appreciate your life on a day-to-day basis. And I think Flo and I obviously have had privileged backgrounds. I think some of your other podcast guests, it's probably been more of a struggle to be able to be in a position to say that. And I think for everyone, that journey is very different, but I think we're all trying to chart towards that same point as just being content with what we have on a day-to-day basis.
0: Mm, it's interesting you say that, Ed, because I think the one, if I look at learnings from the past thirty-nine episodes, is often adversity clarifies success because then you've got to chart your own own path, um, and, and you're not, you know, you don't just follow. Because I think I look at a lot of my friends that I grew up with or or cousins, and that I think if you go into a family business or if you're Dad's played sport or something like that, and you follow it. You sort of told what you're going to do, and you sort of have a north star from a young age. Um, and I wonder. I think, Flo, you you talked about your parents, and obviously, you're doing some work that is that is different to that. You haven't gone down the same path. And I know, speaking to you in the Netherlands, success to you, I would assume, is a lot broader than just work. So when you think back to when you were 17, 18, when you had some understanding of the world if someone had asked you to flow, what does success look like to you? What, what would be your thoughts?
1: Yeah, it's, it's an, it's a very interesting topic. I think that, you know, maybe, maybe it's because of my upbringing or because of my, my culture or wherever that came from. I didn't really think about success for a long time in, in that sense of the word, I guess. Um, you know probably also has to do with the fact that I did have a very privileged upbringing which I'm, I'm extremely thankful for um I didn't really need to needed to think about success in in a way um so it took me quite a while to kind of formulate within myself what do I consider success you know what do I consider successful people for example and and I think Thinking back on those on those years, what influenced me most is probably my grandfather, who was a, a real mentor to me um, for school, but for life in general as well. Uh, and I think there's a lot of overlap with um, the stuff that Ed has touched upon, on being calm and collected and, and understanding the world, I guess. So for me, my grandfather was always like, this, this figure in my life who understood how things worked he understood his, his field of expertise he was a teacher in, in maths and economics and he understood the science side of things but he also understood how the world worked in general he understood politics he understood um, you know physics life in general and and why things work the way that they do uh, and also also socially I, I never wa- really was that much of a social kid so he really helped me on in with that as well um so yeah i would say for me thinking back on that and how that influenced the way that i'm thinking now it kind of created this sense that if you are successful it, it it just means that you have an understanding of who you are you have an understanding of what the world is and how you how the two fit together and if you understand your pathway and and you are, um, maybe content is not the right word, but you, you understand the path that you're taking or the direction you want to go and you are fully committed to do that. And you do that with, you know, you're, you're fully committed to that and yeah, you are happy with that. I think that that's where happiness comes from as well. Um, that's also something that i've uh, I've gotten from my parents, you know, even though they they really, I've taken a completely different direction than than they have professionally and in life as well. They never pushed me in one direction or another. They were very much, you need to find your own way and you need to do your own thing and understand what you enjoy doing yourself. Um, and if you find that understanding and if you find that path that you want to take, that is success that is happiness in a way mm.
0: yeah it's an it's an it's a fascinating question to ask because i actually haven't asked the guest prior about this question so you're you guys are the first and i think it's interesting getting the answers because i would hope everyone have a definition of success that's a bit different from the norm and it's not just the general stuff which is having a nice place to live and having a nice car and a and a roof over your head so yeah, it's, it's fascinating. But that, that's a good segue, I think, into magic moments, which which we talk a lot about in the show, which are those moments that, that we look back on that have played a really big role in our life, whether it's painful learnings or fun experiences or people you've met or cultures you've traveled or lived in. Um, and then knowing both of you, there's been many different moments that you've had and you've touched on it in aspects, but I think listeners will be keen to understand is there a magic moment that stands out for you in life that you look back on and you go that was an asterisk in the journey and it played a big role and either you learned something or you celebrated something or it was just a good moment or period in time ed did you want to go first
2: yeah i think there's a few that i definitely look back on and i'm very grateful that they happened so one that was really pivotal for me we mentioned a bit earlier on the podcast and that was moving from Australia to Sweden. And there are a few things that precipitated that, but I think the bottom line at the time was that I just felt like I was treading water. I wasn't particularly happy with where I was. I just graduated. Um, I was in a job that I didn't think would be my long-term trajectory. And and so I moved to Sweden and and that was magic moment number one. It was really a catalyst, which I think you described better than I. I, I said it was kind of a reset, but I think you phrased it better. It's more of an evolution when you do something like that because you're you're carrying all the learnings you've had, but then you're also exposing yourself to all these new opportunities all of a sudden. You just kind of, you're woken up, um, particularly as someone who'd spent a lot of time growing up in Victoria, moving to Sweden. All of a sudden, everything is new. I had to make all my friends from scratch again. I was in a country that speaks a different language, although they speak English perfectly. I was in a country that, um, or at a new university, I had to find a new job. So all of these things were like really wonderful experiences, just trying to force you to, to re-perceive uh, the world in a different way. And then that kind of led to magic moment number two, which can was, I Can I
0: touch on that, that Ed, and just ask, sure. I think, yeah. how did, because I know this was, I think, after you finished university, and we'd obviously met in university at RMIT. How did Sweden get chosen out of, because obviously a lot of people from Australia think of the UK or they think of America or even Asia. Sweden's probably a bit different and an uh, and, and experience. So how did that come about? Because I don't think I've asked that in our, own ex- in our own conversations,
2: actually. Sweden was a very pragmatic decision. I wanted to move overseas. I'd applied for a few jobs through ISEC, actually, which uh, to give audience context is an international student organization that tries to promote cross-cultural exchange. And that's where Vidit and I got to know each other first. And so I applied for some jobs through ISEC in various countries, including Sweden, and didn't have any luck with that process. And so I thought, okay, what options do I have? I found out that I could study in Sweden for free courtesy of my, uh, Italian passport, which I didn't have at the time, but I decided to get one and, uh, through my mother. And so that's that's kind of how it all worked out. I was just trying to work out how to get over overseas and how to be in a different country. I knew Sweden was a really great place to live from, from things that I'd read. I found this university, Lund University, that sounded wonderful to me. So I applied, um, got into Lund University. I started, um, it was Asian studies that I was studying, Masters of Science in Asian studies, looking at foreign tech firms entering China and why they failed. And and that was really continuing my interest in startups and business. And then that led to catalyst number two, which was I needed a, a job while I was there. I loved startups and I had like a very specific criteria of what kind of startups I wanted to work for. And so I made a list of the startups in the region I kind of stalked the founders on LinkedIn and and other places, tried to find out what they'd done before and stumbled across um, a number of very cool startups. But the, the one that was top of my list was a startup called Mapillary, which was in its very early days. And I applied for a job there. And that was really catalyst or magic moment number two, where all of a sudden this entire world opened up to me, where I was surrounded by incredibly intelligent people. I was at a company that, gave me license to really sh- work on whatever I wanted, as long as it was helping the company, a company that puts trust in the people it hires. And um, I was an intern at the time, cause I was still studying and I, I still had like a year and a half, two years left of my degree. But as an intern, I was doing everything from like p- packing boxes, you know, doing very manual stuff and shipping stuff all the way through to like going to conferences and presenting the company to to various audiences. and that started to give me another sense of self-belief, like growing with this company as they got bigger was just, it's been one of the best experiences, um, both professionally and, and personally. And so that's magic moment number two for me, which.
0: I think a cool question there that, that yeah. often is interesting to ask is, is the painful learnings there, because as you touched on moving countries and cultures is Is big, right? We shouldn't underscore that. It's a big, big jump, and you've done it at a young age when you're still figuring out what life even is. Was there a painful learning there that stands out for you, whether it was work or moving there, or just those? I think three, four years you were there that that really formed you, and you look back on it and you go, "I'm really glad I went through that."
2: I think living overseas really causes you to reflect on your own country as well, and there were various aspects of Swedish culture which. I mean, I love the country. I, Sweden's always going to be, have a very soft spot in my heart. I've been back many times for for work and kind of visited my friends there as well as my colleagues. But as far as a place to settle down for life, it really wasn't that kind of place for me. And and one of the reasons was that as someone who's lived in Melbourne, which is such a multicultural city, it just feels like such a melting pot of different people, not just not just culturally, but also You know, you see see weird people on the street in Melbourne every time, um, but that's part of the beauty of it, the diversity of people, the diversity of thought. And that, I felt, was lacking in Sweden, which was a bit more of a homogenous culture and it's something I really missed there. So it wasn't, you know, adversity as such, but it made me really reflect on what I value as far as a place to live and a society. Um, But at the same time, I took a lot away from Sweden, things that they... Did as a culture that I thought were magnificent that I wanted to bring back to Australia. So that's that's the first thing that comes to mind. It's probably not the ad- adversity so um, specifically, but it, it really was one of the double-sided experiences I had, kind of a negative that also became a positive in terms of how I f- reflect on, on Australia.
0: Hmm, hmm. So you, you've been a bit quiet there, you're listening very well. Um, tell, us about, tell us about your moments. Again, you've had a diverse journey in life. You've you lived in different countries and cultures and, and had experiences. Are there, are there any moments that stand out for you in, in life broadly that you look back on?
1: Yeah, um, I just find it fascinating listening to Ed talking about you know his journey in Sweden as well. I think I had a very similar experience. Um, I would say my, my first magic moment to, to lead into the, the Scandinavian side of things, my first magic moment was, um, I think, my my university, um, going off to college, um, you know, I was I was never the greatest academically, um, but, you know, and, and, and really wasn't really sure at that time, you know, when I was 17, 18, what, what I wanted to do. Um, went into the industrial design engineering program in at tu delft um and you know just cruised along during my bachelor and then when i graduated from my bachelor's and then um, continued on with my masters there i think that was my first magic moment uh, really made some great friends at university and really got stuck in with some some subjects that i absolutely loved and that really Kind of ignited my my passion for for design, but also that was the first time in my life that I was really working and living together with with people that seemed to be on the same wavelength as myself. Um, you know, I never really was the most sociable kid, but but coming into this environment where you know you're working and and and, and, and living and partying with the people that that think. In a similar way to yourself and have similar passions that really opened me up and that really created this this scenario where i could really um flourish in a way i guess um so that that really ignited my passion for for design and 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 also for for working hard and doing well in that field um like I said, never really was the greatest academically before then, but when I started my masters and, and, and all this stuff really clicked for me, I started doing really well. Um, and that really that created a lot of joy for me and and understanding that oh this is actually something that I'm quite good at and it's something that I enjoy. And then finding the right people around you that that, you know, behave and, and think in the same way, that that really formed a lot of my personality, I think. And and part of that to to touch upon what Ed, Ed has mentioned as well is that whole Sweden thing. I moved to Norway uh, for six months. So during my master's, we had this um, study abroad program that allowed you to, you know, find another university where we had a bilateral agreement with and allowed you to do an exchange project. And I decided to go to to Norway because Scandinavia always fascinated me already. And that was my magic moment number two, really, because it was such a formative experience. And that was the, the first time I was completely on my own. Um, you know, no family, no friends. Had to make my friends from scratch there as well. Um, but that was just such a fantastic experience for me that really ignited my passion for... Um, in a way sustainability as well Um, seeing the way that the the Scandinavian culture deals with you know how they how they handle their resources and how they handle you know all the way from from the way they action things in business but also on the political level and the government level the way that they they see things and they have perspective for the for long-term sustainability it's fascinating to me and it really ignited this passion as well for the for the natural world i think it's the most beautiful place i've ever been um and that really transformed me to to really wanting to kind of get into a field and and, and use my my knowledge and expertise and design to work towards you know a, a world where we can do that everywhere because i i was very much aware that you know the the, the privilege and the and the and that kind of stuff that's, that's present in Northwest Europe, that's, you know, that's, a, that's an area that's not very common in the world. There's, you know, it's a very rich and privileged area. And and there's not a lot of places in the world where, where people have that amount of, of wealth and, and knowledge and expertise and, and the ability to basically do whatever you want to do. And, and I understood very clearly that coming from an area like that, and, and having, the I guess, the capabilities to, to action upon some of those things, I really felt very strongly towards trying to do that for the rest of the world as well. Um, so taking, taking all of that and then moving to Australia, which I guess is kind of magic moment number three for me, it's coming into this culture which, you know, of course, there's always perceptions and, and that, that you already have uh, preconceived. But then coming to Australia and understanding, you know, how am I going to to position myself in this society, and how do I make sure that I can, you know, what am I going to do here? Because I really moved to be together with my with my partner, of course. Um, but being freshly graduated and having this big head full of shiny ideas, I was like, how am I going to to make this work over here? And finding my way here using those principles and using that as a as a As anchor points so my really that sense for you know i just want to work on sustainability matters i want to work in design and i want to work on solutions that improve society for everyone who's involved that kind of pushed me in a direction that that i'm now very happy to be in so yeah
0: yeah i think around around learnings one of the things that i am fascinated to ask guests is what is one piece of advice that you often give but find hard to follow yourself? Yourself, and I think it's really topical to ask the three of us that because we are very good at giving each other advice and 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 being good kind of sounding boards. But Flo, maybe we start with you. Like, is there one advice that you give others that you find hard to follow yourself?
1: Oh, well, that's a that's a great question. Um, yeah, thinking of all the advice that we generally give each other, I, <laughs> I think that the one piece of advice that I think matches that description is that i always like to say try to follow intrinsic motivation rather than extrinsic motivation um so talking about you know there, there's a lot of external factors that that can inform your decision making like whether that's financial or, or whatever i always like to say follow your intrinsic motivation so make decisions based on what you enjoy doing what fulfills You as a person, rather than having these external factors make that decision for you. Uh, But of course, that's easier said than done, and I find it very difficult to to follow that advice myself at times Mm. because, you know, external factors do play a role, and it is important. And you know, whether that's financial or whether that's uh, moving to a certain city or country, or you know, buying the things that you buy or, or that kind of stuff. Um it does play a role, but I always like to, in principle, follow the rule that if I make important decisions, for example, um, uh, you know, taking a particular job or not or moving to a certain location or not, I always like to weigh up the intrinsic motivators first. So does it fulfill me? does it make me happy, you know, talking about that definition of success we were talking about? I think it comes down to, you know, being, following a path that that makes you happy, really. And for me, external motivators, you know, they might give you some short-term bursts of endorphins that you like, but long-term to be in a place where you are calm and collected and where you are happy with the choices you've made, I think comes from intrinsic motivators, making sure that Mm. you make the choices that fulfill you as a person rather than trying to please some external factors. Yeah.
0: Mm. Yeah, I think we can all relate to that. Ed, Ed, what about yourself? Any advice that you, you find you give others, but find hard to follow yourself?
2: Yeah, just firstly on flows, I absolutely love that one. I think that's one that's going to stick with me. It's often hard, though, to navigate both what you define yourself as intrinsic, understanding yourself, I think is important to be able to make that call and then sometimes being able to separate extrinsic from intrinsic can be difficult as well because sometimes they do overlap a little bit where social creatures, we're influenced by our environment, but I absolutely love that one as a framework. for thinking as far as me, some advice, I can't remember where I heard this, but it resonates with me all the time and I try to think about it regularly, but, and embody it, it's struggle is that, um, To be extraordinary, you have to be extraordinary. And the essence of that is is that if you want to be someone who's considered extraordinary, you have to do things that aren't aren't ordinary. And I see a lot of people around me, including myself, who they look up at these people that they admire and they kind of see that they're potentially able to replicate what those people have achieved, but they do things on a day-to-day basis that are very different to you know, that top 1% that achieve incredible things in their respective domains. And so I think this manifests itself in little ways. Like, you know, if I'm sitting on the couch watching Netflix at night, I'll often think, okay, what is the opportunity cost of doing this? Like, is this something that <laughs> someone I admire, a great, a, you know, a great human being on this planet that's accomplished a lot, would have done? <laughs> and it can be stressful at times, like having this monologue in your head because you're like, come on, dude, I just want to relax. It's like a, a Saturday night. I just want to do something else um, other than work. But it, it, I think Talk it is something- Talk about
1: extrinsic motivators there. <laughs> yeah, well, no,
0: I'm laughing because it's, it. it's so true. Like we, I do it as well, where you're like sitting there relaxing and you're like, oh no, I should be, be productive. I should be doing stuff. And it's like this, I think it's a society we live in where you go on social media, it's like quotes and inspiring stories and all that. And you always feel you have to be on. But I would assume the best performers get time to rest and switch off right
2: Yeah I think the jury's still out I mean I was I listened to a lot of Scott Galloway who's an academic uh, and an entrepreneur and he he's very much in the tech space so I listened to him a lot and even today on LinkedIn he's spoken about this a few times but he posted that to have balance in your life at his age he's maybe 50 something now you have to forfeit it in your 20s and 30s. And he said this multiple times, like really to get to a stage in your life where you, you are able to achieve balance, you need to work really hard in your 20s and 30s. And I think there's different trains of thought on that. It really depends on what you're aiming to achieve. I think in business in particular, you you really do have to work hard in your 20s and 30s at least because your competition's doing the same. But if you're someone who maybe loves the environment and, you know, you, you want to be out in nature, you can maybe find a sense of balance whilst also pursuing your, your, your passion and, and your work. So I wouldn't say it fits for everyone, but I do go back to that thing. If you want to be extraordinary, you have to be extraordinary and thinking about, okay, who are the people that you do admire and want to replicate and what was different about them from the norm. They created a different outcome because obviously there was something that was different, right? Otherwise, they wouldn't be so remarkable. Um, and so, then bringing that back, working backwards from there, and like, what in your own life, day to day, do you have to do to create that um, that different outcome that gets gets you to where you want to be?
0: Mm, to to build on that, I think, and and we spend a lot of time talking about this in in our general lives. I think one thing that I've probably observed more so in the last year through the podcast and through my own experience in life has been often you also need people to spot that greatness in you. like And, and that's been interesting whether you're a startup founder, you need investors, or you're a sports player, you need selectors to pick you on the team, or if you're a, a corporate or a, in a job, you need managers or leadership to go, okay, we, we will invest in this person and back their potential and promote them, right? And I think that's been the most fascinating thing that I've probably realizing the last year is we in our own individual capacity can be the best. But if the others don't see that in in see that from their side, you kind of want to go forward. And that's even in if you control, right? Even if you control the controllables, I think. And that's been fascinating for me because I think it connects back to where people go, they like they want to work with people they like and people they can relate to. But there's a level of particularly in jobs nowadays where there's different generations working on the same project people might feel threatened by someone's views or... I mean, I look at 20-year-olds now and the confidence they've got and the awareness they've got and the ability to do stuff. I mean, I think back to when I was 20, I didn't have even half of that. And I look at them and I go, if I'm managing them tomorrow or if I'm investing in their project, am I going to feel insecure when I stand next to them? And I probably will because they can do so much more that they've done well, way earlier than I ever did. And that's probably the role of social media as well, where knowledge is one click away. Um, and it's a fascinating world we live in. I think I'm, I'm interested to see over the next five, 10, 15 years, even the definition of success, how it changes. Because I think, yes, there's a view that you need people to support you, but then you can also do a podcast, which is decentralized, and you can start an app on your own. And if you've got a bit of money or a bit of ability or a bit of kind of a, a willingness to do it, you can do it. So yeah, it's it's a fascinating world we're in at the moment. I think it's very different to anything before, where you you need support to a certain extent, but then you can also do stuff independently. Back to what he's saying, do the ordinary stuff and do the basic mundane and stuff, which can often separate you from from the rest of the pack. So
1: yeah, yeah interesting. I'd like to add to that as, as well, if I can. It's I think you know going going back to that advice of, of intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation, I think it plays a role there as well, is that, you know, there, there's, there's so much competition out there. There's so many people doing such great things that I think it can be, you know, especially for for the younger generations with, with their access to social media and their access to the internet, which is far greater than we had when we were young at that age is that, you know it becomes very it can be very damaging because it's such a um, comparative society in a way. like we've gotten to a point where if, if somebody is working on something, it gets shared and everybody knows about it, and there's a lot of people comparing themselves to to others in that way. Um, you know and that that can I think that that can become damaging because you then. You then tie your self-worth or your own personal value to what other people are doing and i think that that can be problematic which is why i i, li- I like to think that you know the, the the being coming from an intrinsic motivation point of view i think it's very valuable to just do what you want to do and you'll find a way to to do that um to to clarify that a bit further i guess what i'm trying to say is that if there's a particular field you are passionate about, you know, do that work in that field, do, do what you think needs to be done rather than chasing, you know, a certain, certain achievement you need to get or a certain position you want to, you want to get to it's, um, for example, with, with my work in particular, um, you know, working as an industrial designer, um, there's a, there's a bit of a, you know, conflict of interest being an industrial designer, which is, you know, trying to create products for mass consumption and, and mass fabrication, but then being passionate about sustainability and the environment and this, this kind of a, a clash there of consumerism versus sustainability and creating a society where we can, you know, have, have less of a negative impact on our, on our living environment. And, so what I decided to do is try and find ways, how can I, how can I blend the two and whether that's a field that's already been, been done before, or whether that's a field that nobody's thought about before, that doesn't really matter. It's for me, that's, that's the direction that my passion and my interests are taking me. And as a result, I found that just working on that, even though that's outside the, the job description of, of my position that allowed me to to get in touch with people that think the same, and it's very much like you uh, kind of a mentality of you you reap what you sow. So you start working in this field, and you know you put you put this message out to the to the to the universe in a way, and people will answer. People will find you, and now as a result, you know I'm obviously um, I'm I'm going to transition to a new position soon, which is much more related to to that particular field and were would i not have done this kind of work which is completely separate to my normal job description i would never have gotten into this field so to kind of you know to your point of you know there's certain support that you need and there's uh, you need to wait and you need to be lucky in a way to get picked and to get supported i think there's also another uh, another side to that is that if you are Interested and passionate about a certain field, even though it might not directly suit the position you are in or might not suit the the deliverables you need to meet. If that is what you want to do and if that is your passion and what you're interested in, the world will find a way to to make that work, you know, given granted that it's, you know, obviously you're trying to achieve positive impacts, um, which I, I think is an important topic that we can discuss Uh, For hours, but Mm.
0: yeah, yeah. I think to round that out, hundred percent. I think, I think maybe just my observation there is, and and your your example just you shared is perfect. Where if you put out your stuff in the world and you put out your interests, someone will find you. And I mean that happened with you with this new role that you're going into, where someone found you on LinkedIn and then they they were interested in what you're doing. But I think the step prior to that is. What we talked about right you've got to have an environment whether it's within your own head or with friends or family we feel comfortable sharing that but but that's really a good good I think segue into into your hustle boys um talking particularly about your work so we spend a lot of time talking about your journeys and life and talking about your work and you both do super interesting stuff I mean all three of us do very interesting stuff but in very different fields And that's probably one of the things we talk a lot about Um, maybe we start with you ed like how would you describe your recent roles if you think back to the last year or two and then your current role
2: yeah i think my current role is very much a continuation of my previous roles if you would call them that i think it's all been on a continuum and that's in the mapping space so i work when i moved to sweden um, shortly after the company i referred to before was maplery and that's a company that collects street level imagery from a variety of different sources, much like you, you would see on Google Street View. But the difference is that we've been getting it from not just very expensive cameras, but also $80 Android smartphones in ta- Tanzania and Canadians with a an action camera on the front of their bike. And So we collect imagery from a variety of different sources, and then we use computer vision to convert that to map data. And so my role pretty consistently over the last Five, six years has been working with some of the people that are utilizing our platform, trying to understand what makes it useful for them, at the same time getting more imagery on our platform um, for the purpose of making better maps of the planet. So, a lot of my work revolves around the open source mapping space, working with communities like OpenStreetMap, which is often des- described as the Wikipedia of maps, as um, a simple way to put it, a-, a map of the world that anyone can contribute to, uh, working a lot with you know, large companies that are relying on street-level imagery to improve their own maps, working with humanitarian agencies and the World Bank. Um, So I'm very lucky in that my role is very global. I get to work with people in different parts of the world. I get to work on different problems every single day. Um, That's also part of the stress of it, is that I might have my head in like 50 different areas at any given day. But uh, my role is still very much trying to work at how can we make our platform more useful for people that are trying to improve the world's maps and and getting data in, in different areas of the world that are, are interesting to us so if we need imagery and say new york like what strategies can we come up with that will help us get new imagery in new york
0: hmm. there's probably a story here that i'm thinking of that's share sharing with listeners ed and i'm sure i hope you don't mind is we were in New Zealand in, in late 2017 on a, on a trip with Ed and another friend of ours, Jordan. Um, and we had a car, we'd rented a car, and we were driving around Queenstown. Um, and Ed being a very mapping enthusiast, <laughs> he, he brought his GoPro along, I believe, and he brought all the wiring along. So our car was wired up and we had a, a, a decent sized camera at the front of our car, mapping the routes we were going down because we were doing trails and we were in forests and, and mountains. And, and I remember looking at that going, what are you doing, Ed? Like people would look at us thinking we're, we're part of the police or we're undercover spies or something. I mean, that probably just showed Ed's interest. And at that point, you probably were, what, two years into the industry in 2017 or three years into
2: it maybe? Yeah, probably three years into it at that point, but mm-hmm. never miss an opportunity to capture. <laughs> um, I've been in many different parts of the world uh, sticking cameras on things, Ethiopia, for example, in the back of a, a truck on the side of a mountain. Putting the GoPro on the back of the truck, um, tuk tuks in Tanzania, uh, so never miss an opportunity. Because if you think about every image, there's a, a wealth of map data that can be useful for, for not just my work, but also other people out there, whether they're mapping cycle infrastructure or mapping roads or mapping um, areas that are prone to flooding. And so in New Zealand, it was mainly just because New Zealand for me, I, I haven't I've only seen parts of Norway flow, so we'll have to compare notes later, but. Um, for me, New Zealand was the most beautiful country on earth. And so we actually took a photo of our rental car. I don't know if you remember, but there was we parked in Queenstown. The rental car was on a hill. We had the cameras all set up and I was like, okay, let me take a photo of this. It's like just, just to show the setup. Took a photo, of the snow capped mountains are in the background, yeah. Queenstown's all green. And I've been using that in promotional material ever since to show <laughs> like how you can equip your car. So it was it was worthwhile. Thanks it's, for putting up with me. <laughs> Putting the cameras on.
1: Did uh, you ever get like in real trouble for doing that? Did ever did anyone pull you over and told you like what the hell are you doing?
2: Yeah, probably the funniest one was I was in China for my master's thesis. I was doing field research, and I was staying in a an Airbnb, but it was like a uh, it was like a, a dorm of different Chinese guys were working on tech. Um, I'd really loved. I wish I. would connected with them better because they're probably super successful Chinese entrepreneurs now. But I was living in that dorm for the period in which I was doing my, my thesis research. And I, I go to the market or something and I was coming back to the dorm and I thought, I'm going to take a different route this time, uh, to, uh, to see if I can make my way back. And I looked on the map and there was like a much more direct route to get back to my dorm. And so I start taking this, this route and I see, uh, I see these guards standing outside a gate and the gate was like open, but the guards were standing there. And it's very common in China and I guess a lot of Asia to have guards outside institutions, often out there, you know, they're outside universities and schools. Uh, but I I just looked the guards in the eye, kind of walked past them confidently and they didn't stop me. So I was like, okay, great. Got to another set of guards, kinda of same. I'm like, okay, this is getting a bit more serious, the second pair of guards, but um We'll past them again and kind of had my camera out at that point. I'm like, okay, this is kind of cool. Let me map some of this this pathway. And then there was this big grand building, uh, maybe a half a kilometer away. It looked like a neo-colonial building, a bit like um, maybe the White House or something like that. And uh, I'm like, okay, this is getting a bit serious. It's all the all these fancy cars coming out of it. So I stopped and turned like at the wall, I started working, walking next to the wall. And at that point, all these Chinese police like surrounded me, started yelling in Chinese, asking what I was doing. And uh, so I put the camera away, um, tried to, you know, play the dumb tourist and explain that I was, I was trying to get back to my accommodation, that I was lost. Luckily, that it ended there. I think that was 2016. I think if I did that now, I'd probably be in a very different situation. China's changed a lot in the last yeah, I, um, few years.
1: I can imagine.
2: Yeah, they, they escorted me out. They had a guy on a police scooter who was just um, kind of grabbing me by the arm and trying to ride his scooter at the same time, dragging me out of the, the gates. And I think they had a yell at the guards for not doing their job, um, keeping me out. And I looked it up later. It turned out to be a, uh, I think it was like a a, a research institute for nuclear physics or something like that. So, understandably, mm. a bit more high security. And and luckily, I I, I made sensitive it
1: out. info there.
2: <laughs> yeah, had to delete the images, unfortunately. So no no evidence.
0: Flo, how how would you describe your recent roles? Again, the work you're doing is quite unique. I mean, there's a few few similarities with Ed in terms of in terms of cities and and um communities, but how would you describe your roles in terms of your objectives and the work you've done?
1: Yeah, um, so I am an industrial design engineer by trade. Um, I think the the best way to describe it is now working for um, for a local government agency, so working for the city of Melbourne as an industrial designer. A um, large part of what we do is, is basically design and develop uh, the street furniture that goes into our city. Um, I think the um, an interesting aspect of working as an industrial designer for uh, a government agency rather than, than a private company or a startup or whatever is that the priorities are, are very different, which I, I personally quite enjoy. Uh, I've done a few internships with, with design agencies and such. And, you know, of course, usually in those situations, the client is keen um you know there, there's there's clients that come to a design agency to to get a certain idea developed or to get a certain product designed and um they have the final say and they have the final say on on budget and how much time is spent on certain things and but being an industrial designer for a local government um it's much more focused on the actual benefit that you provide for the people uh, in the area that you work in which I find very interesting so um you know when we do, when we work with our landscape architects or, or the architects or the urban designers to to redevelop a streetscape or to uh, to help develop a new park or something like that uh, our team comes in to really understand well what is on the on the smallest scale so the the, the individual scale if you will. Uh, what are the needs of of the people that use this space? You know, you can imagine that a, a landscape architect or an architect they they think a bit broader. It's very much about the space as a whole, and and as an industrial designer, we focus more on the on the tiny little detail level of, you know, what kind of seats are we going to put in? Where do we? How do we design our bins, etc. Our light poles. Uh, what about the other furniture that goes into the city? Yeah, and I think it's a it's a very interesting role um in the way that you have uh, you can have a lot of impact on the way a space is being used and so it's almost you you see the city as as a as a design exercise which is it's very interesting to me um and as i mentioned before also got a, a, an incredible passion for for sustainability and, and and trying to reduce the negative impact on our environment um which is something that's that's very close to my heart, and I'm trying to implement that in my my roles as well by focusing on what we call uh, circular economic models. So basically, it's um, it's a different way of of handling your resources and handling the not only the design of your products, but also how you treat them at the end of their life, and trying to uh, to recover the resources that are inside, um, and focusing on that next to my my active deliverables of designing street furniture that now got me a role into state government as an advisor on circular economy
0: good stuff Floyd. that was a very very good answer thanks for thanks for sharing <laughs> now if we if we zoom out a bit and, and we talked about success earlier in life but if we look at success in work and i think it's fair to say we're all driven people and we're all passionate and competitive. Maybe we can start with you, Ed. If if you go in a perfect world or what are you doing right now and you look three years out, what would fulfill you? And we talked about happiness and intrinsic motivators and all that, but you're still working and you've got other people, and you've got external forces. What does success look like in three years' time for you in work?
2: Yeah, so I think one thing that I would like to be doing a lot more of is – risk taking, being more comfortable with taking risks. Uh, I have kind of I, always ideas in the mapping space percolating about different you know, companies I'd like to start in the space and often you can conf- you inflate the opportunity cost in your head about the risks of, of doing that. So I think, I don't want to say like three years exactly, it might be earlier, it might be later, but I, I definitely had some pretty concrete, well-developed ideas of things I'd like to do in the mapping space, areas where I think I can add value. Um, And I'd I'd love to take the risk and and jump off, you know, a very (laughs) comfortable um, job and and maybe pursue those further, Uh, which is kind of another theme that I think is super interesting to explore is um, I, I hear it a lot and see it in books that I read where people talk about often the the perceived risks are not as great as you think they're going to be. And often the upside is not as good as you think it will be either. Um, it's not universally true, but I think it's often the case that we, we're much more worried about the negative consequences of taking an action than how it's actually going to be. And I think you alluded to that earlier that with your mention of the podcast and for a lot of people, they think about all the reasons why it's not going to work, but you know, the people who really do cool things are the ones that think about all the reasons why it could work and all the reasons why it could be worthwhile. So that's something in the next um, three years, I mean, I very much am setting that timeline for myself of like starting to explore these ideas further that I have for um, for things in the mapping space. And perhaps we can talk about that in a late, later podcast. But um, yeah, that for me is, is the three-year mark.
0: Yeah, fantastic. I think, yeah, I couldn't agree more with what he said there. If you take a risk, I think you learn a lot about yourself as well. I mean, I just very quickly, I think I look back to my very short journey and I've taken some massive risks, whether by chance or by circumstance. And I think your belief in yourself grows with that because you have to go all in, right? I mean, podcast is not a perfect example because you're not going all in, you still have I work outside that and an income stream but when people start a business i think that's something that i was actually talking to someone about the other day is um, when you start something of your own and your name's against it and you're at some point paying other people's wages and helping them live their lives you go all in then there's like no turning back you kind of have to make it work um, whereas if you're like doing bits and pieces and you have a job and you do something on the side then you don't have anything to lose so your mental state is also like oh yeah i can still be comfortable um, which is interesting. but
2: Yeah, I mean, that's so true because you see that all the time. And I, I struggle with that as well. Like I have a lot of commitments outside of my work, but and I always think to myself, you know, I'd love to be more involved in these other commitments, but it's just so difficult when you're spending, you know, 50, 60 hours a week in your primary pursuit, even though you love it, you know, you've, you've got other pursuits that you'd also like to explore and it's it's always a balancing act, which is one of the reasons why it's so important that, the thing that you do spend 50 60 hours a week on is something that you love because you're going to be doing it day in day out um and so i always get sad when i see friends or, or or people that i know that are doing something that they don't love day in and day out and and unable to change that situation so yeah that's that's um that's always unfortunate when you see that but i'm very lucky i think in that my day job i i love and then I'm able to do a lot of the other things that I'm interested in. But um, yeah, over time, it's it's interesting. Like, I totally agree with what you said about committing outside of work. Sometimes you do need to just jump off and, and take that risk um, and, and go all in, so to speak, on whatever it is that you're passionate about starting.
0: Yeah, I'd actually, uh, before we go to flow with his answer, I think I'd encourage you to, there's some episodes that we've done on the podcast where people have actually talked about that transition in quite a lot of detail where well, they've gone from being in a paid job to starting their own venture of in whatever form. Um, and I can link them to you if you wanted. And they've gone through a lot of detail because I'm with you. That's something that I want to do as well at some point. And you never know how what the manual is to do it. You go, is it financial? Is it social? Is it whatever? Um, and there's been a few people that have come on and shared that in quite a lot of detail. So. Uh, but Flo, you, you yourself, success in three years?
1: Yeah. Um- I just—I was just listening to you guys and just wonderful responses to to hear about your your visions for the future. And I think I resonate with a lot of that. Um, I think thinking about my personal goals for the next three years and how to define success. I think, given the space that I'm in now, transitioning to a, to a position of being a senior advisor for the state government, I think it comes down to creating a platform for change. Um, you know, talk about sustainability, circular economy, design, etc. I think that naturally, from from my upbringing and and coming from the Netherlands, which is a country that's um, you know fairly advanced in their thinking about about these topics, uh, I have the benefit of you know being brought up with a lot of of knowledge in this field, and I would just love to see um us getting to a position where i can share that knowledge and share that value with with australia and and with victoria as a state i think in the next three years i would love to get to a point where we can you know not just me uh, as an individual but with the with the entire team at state government level is to work on you know creating the creating the the platform that enables people to do the same um i think there's such uh, Incredible potential in transitioning to circular economic principles and and using those principles in fabrication and design and logistics and and construction and wherever you want it to be. And I would love for us to get to a point where we can enable other people that are thinking about this to actually action upon those things and to enable people to do the same. And so that would be wonderful. I think. I'm getting to a point now where I do think I have a, a bit of value to add to the to the field and I would just love to to educate others and 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 to help people achieve achieve the same so that we can create a group of people and and basically just a a culture in you know in our society that enables for these positive changes to to happen I hope that doesn't sound too vague but uh
0: no, it sounds very team-oriented, which is which is probably a reflection of your values as well. So good stuff. Now, time for the final sprint, boys. The final sprint name actually comes from our running interests, um, and this is just some rapid-fire questions. So is there one investment you've made that you consider the best in your life, and it doesn't have to be financial?
1: Yeah, um, I think I'll, I'll go first here. I would personally consider the best investment that I've ever made was – really following through with my education um i think i'm not the only the only one here that you know that knows that sometimes university or school is is a chore and it's annoying and there's a lot of stuff that's not interesting but i think seeing it through to the end to make sure that you know i got my diploma in the end but also to have the to make the most of what university can give you i think that's been the most valuable investment that i've ever made in my life i'm of course, very privileged that, you know, being brought up in the Netherlands, education is relatively cheap for us. Uh, so it was never really a financial burden, which is fantastic. It's not like that in a lot of other countries, unfortunately. But I would I would say that if you have the opportunity to have a good education, milk it for all you can. It's it's the best thing ever, I would
2: say. Yeah, I definitely have to echo that one. I think for me, it's... Uh... It's come from a few places, but I guess the investment would be around mental introspection. And I think the real catalyst was a podcast that I've listened to, you know, every week for for years now, um, which is the making sense podcast formerly known as waking up talks a lot about meditation and meditation was something that I'd always just put away as some kooky new age (laughs) pursuit. Uh, and then I noticed this pattern where so many of the people I respected were meditating. And and that really makes you reevaluate your stereotype or your perception of it. And so not to say that I meditate, you know, religiously or, or incredibly regularly. I do try to do it when I'm stressed, but it speaks to a more um, specific thing, which is just analyzing your own mind and particularly the monkey mind that I think many of us probably suffer from in this day and age of constant stimulation.
0: One thing you'd like to learn in the next six months, Ed?
2: I'm actually, before this podcast, I was doing some JavaScript because I want to learn React.js, which is a really great framework for doing um, like responsive web applications. And so that's actually a great way for me to test out my, my ideas in the mapping space. Flo, so what about you?
1: Um, I would say I'd love to learn um, to get more proficient with some of my 3D CAD modeling software. I'd love to learn how to do 3D mesh modeling. Um, it just would help me enormously in in my role. Is
0: there one quote or person that inspires you?
1: I think a, a person that inspires me a lot. It's it's a little bit cliche as an industrial designer, but Dieter Rams, who was uh, the famous designer for Brown. Um, a while ago, he's, you know, the, the person who came up with uh, the 10 principles of good design. Um, that's That might be cliche, but what really inspires me is that he is, you know, as successful as successful comes for an industrial designer. You know, he inspired Apple's designs, et cetera, et cetera. But a really interesting thing that he's mentioned is that he feels bad about his work. He was saying, he's been quoted saying that, you know, because of the, the the impact that has his work has had on the environment and on our society, you know, stimulating the consumerism and, and the capitalist society we live in today, um, he feels very sorry about that. And that inspires me to really understand and, and go into a field where, as a designer, you can do things differently differently. Um, Dieter Rams, I believe he actually mentioned if he had to make the choice again, he wouldn't become an industrial designer again. And that really inspires me to, you know, not not give up, but to do it differently.
2: Yeah, for me, a quote that I love, even though I'm not religious in any way, is there, but for the grace of God, go I. And I think it summarizes really well just how so much of the outcomes that people have in life are shaped by both genetics and then their early environment things that are completely outside of their control and we're often far too judgmental of those around us so that quote rings true to me all the time particularly talking to you two boys like all three of us are incredibly privileged um where i think have pretty good mental health generally speaking um, but just being mindful of others around us that that don't have that and unfortunately i think too much of society attributes their success to their own hard work and not all the good fortune that they've had. So I try to live by that. And specifically, I think people who talk about this often are people like uh, Scott Galloway and Malcolm Turnbull and um, Sam Harris. Like those are all people that, that uh, that speak about it often in various ways.
0: Mm-hmm. And last one, if you could start over your life from scratch today with the experiences and the knowledge you have, what is one thing you'd stop doing?
2: I think, we, we spoke earlier before about the definition of success being uh, very, being like really content with whatever makes you happy and um, trying to value what you have on a day-to-day basis. And when we, when I was eighteen and my uncles and, and what, how calm they were. And I think, yeah, going back, I would just tr- try to be a lot more grateful of the little things along the way, not stressing so much, uh, which is always easier in high, hindsight. I think. High school in particular is a very angsty time for a lot of people and and I very much had that. And I wish I'd just, yeah, been a bit calmer back then, um, try to see the best in people, which I think when you're younger, you're not as good at. So that's probably one thing I'd I'd do differently. Like all those people that I encountered earlier in my life, just see see the best intentions in them. And I think the outcomes um, would be quite different but i'm so happy with where i'm at now it's one of those weird questions where where you know would you change anything well you probably wouldn't want to be in a different place now but at the same time like everyone has things that they would do differently
0: and is there anything you'd stop doing today like whether it's mindset or behaviors or habits that you go if i if you had a chance to reset you'd stop doing that today one thing
2: I think lately, so I'm in the United States and the sugar content in everything here is so high, Uh, whether it's, I I bought this tea the other day, I was like, I felt like iced tea. It's very hot. I bought this famous American iced tea. I drank three gallons of the stuff over the course of a week and I looked at the sugar content. Yeah, I'm on the gallons now. <laughs> and and each cup about this big, you can't say on the podcast, but 150 milliliters of the stuff is 66% of your daily sugar intake. So <laughs> I, I should probably stop drinking and eating American uh, high sugar content products.
0: I like it. Flo, is there one thing you'd stop doing if you if you could reset with all the stuff you know today?
1: Uh, I think it's very similar to what has touched upon sugar. as well. It's just, um, <laughs> oh, definitely should that's a problem. I'm a sweet tooth. but <laughs> No, I, I would say, you know, that the being more grateful and appreciative for, for what you have and being less worried about what everybody else thinks. I think I was quite an anxious teenager as well. And that that really, the, you know, there were quite a few years in my youth where it, where it basically controlled me, you know, always thinking about, oh, what would others think? What do others, how do others perceive you? And yeah, if I would have to say one thing I should stop doing today, it's um, um, get out of your own head. I'm, I'm very much an overthinker and I need to get out of my own head. I need to appreciate, you know, the beautiful society and, and environment that we live in. We're all extremely privileged people and we need to be grateful for that. Um, so yeah, I I would get out of my own head, maybe do some of that meditating that Ed was talking about. That sounds pretty good.
2: Mm. Love it, Fly. You're beautiful just the way
1: you are. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, that's, thanks, that's a great note to end on, Ed. That's the finish line, boys. Um, again, thanks so much for being part of this and celebrating episode forty. I think you both got awesome experiences and perspectives. That's that makes me think again, and I'm hoping the listeners enjoy this episode. So, thanks again, and and talk soon. Yeah,
1: thanks for yeah, having absolutely. us, Ed. Congratulations. And congratulations. Mate. congratulations on your 40th episode and it's just wonderful to be part of, of this journey you're on so thank you very much
0: yeah i mean it's special yeah, for thanks, listeners mate. to give perspective episode one was with taps who, who is a good member of the run club and episode 40 is with ed and Floyd. so we'll see we'll see what
2: lies ahead anyone listening episode to this who hasn't 100. heard episode <laughs> one you need to listen to episode one with taps amazing <laughs> yes
1: it's fantastic so maybe episode 100 all of us come together yeah. on the podcast
0: yeah, that's what success looks like, right, in three years. <laughs> I hope you took away some actionable insights and learnings from this conversation to apply to your lives and be 1% better every day. And I look forward to sharing the next episode with you next Tuesday. Stay tuned.